My name is Jeremy. We're going to continue worshiping today. What we've been doing is going through these churches in Revelation. Uh, there are seven churches, and they're each unique. And like uh, us, we're positioned at a specific point, a specific time for such a time as this. And it's neat to see how God's word to them is also God's word to us today. So I want to start today with a question. Uh, sometimes they tell a story, but today I want to ask a question, and I know you've had various church background experience, or maybe no experience at all, but at our church, it is okay to talk as long as you're talking to me. So, no, I'm just kidding. You can talk to your neighbor, too, as long as you're not, you know, sermon stuff. So, I want to ask a question this morning. Feel free to shout out the response. I think we've all probably had some experience with this. There are a lot of good deeds that can be done in life, but oftentimes some of the most significant ones and some that don't even seem significant go entirely unnoticed. So let me ask you this morning for a few examples of some good deeds that go unnoticed. What are some things that are just a random good deed that goes unnoticed? Holding the door. Oh, I heard. So who said what? Cooking for your family. So you did it like one day and then you were done. Is that right? No. You did it once on one day. No, you did it like multiple times that day and then the next day and then the next day. And then everybody just said, hey, mom, what's for dinner? You know, the assumption is that food is going to be on the table. It's going to be hot, yummy, and it's ready when I get there, right? And you do it over and over and over again. What's another example? Good deed often goes unnoticed or unmentioned. Paying the bill for someone behind you. That's good. There's no way they can pay you back. What's another one? What's that? Listening, very good. That's an excellent skill that will, I can see, I'm assuming that's your spouse sitting next to you, is that correct? Yep. There's, there's a reason she's still sitting next to you. I think part of that might be the fact that you listen. Over a long period of time, that becomes a very valuable skill. Any others? Sorry? Teachers teaching every single day, showing up to their classrooms where the kids are going <laughs> with their noses and stuff like that. They're still there. Way to go, teachers. What else? Prayer. Prayer. Absolutely nobody is going to see you pray. And in fact, unless you pray for something very specific like, you know, Lord, we need the rent money by the end of the week. And, and if you just say, God, please bless somebody. There's no way you're ever going to know, you know, or they're going to know whether that happened or not. Prayer is a great example. Any others? Showing your love. Very good. I wrote down a few, and I actually asked some people on Facebook, so not all of these are mine. I thought of prayer. Here's one that somebody on Facebook said. They said, using someone's name, like at the checkout, at the grocery store, like acknowledging that there's a person there and that they exist. There's an unnoticed good deed. Another one, years of making meals. Here's one, a good example, giving money like at church. Like you throw the money in the plate and you will never see where that money goes, whether it goes to a missionary, whether it goes to help someone in need, whether it goes to take care of you know someone's uh, medical bill or health insurance or whatever. You will not see the end result. 
of that giving. Here's one I really liked. This is a good deed that often goes unnoticed. Holding one's tongue. A very good deed that if you do it well, no one even notices that you did it. If you don't, they notice, obviously. Many good deeds go unnoticed, and I was thinking about some of this this time of year as I'm raking leaves almost endlessly in my front yard, and my wife's like, oh, look at the beautiful fall colors, and I'm like, uh, fall, <laughs> you know? And she thinks of fall, she thinks pretty. I think of fall, I think raking. But then I go into the kitchen and I'm like, ooh, food. And she thinks, ugh, meal. <laughs> you know, here comes more dishes and more laundry and more leaves. It's this unending, meaningless labor and toil of daily work every single day. And sometimes you feel like, I'm just completely spent. I'm pouring myself out. There's nothing coming back in. And I got to do this over and over and over again. Oh, what is the point? In a world where so many, and I mean seemingly committed believers, come up short at the end of the race, how can we run the race so as to finish well and perhaps even with more gusto or energy than we even started with? Today, as we look at Revelation chapter 3, I'm going to give you hopefully three encouragements. My goal is just to encourage you today, to spur you on, to say, look, here's motivation, here's meaning, here's purpose, here's the reason to keep running and running well. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to follow along with us as I read. We've also got the words up on the screen for you and blue Bibles in the back if you want to borrow one. Revelation's easy to find. It's just the last book in your Bible. So, Revelation chapter 3. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. To that church and to us, he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What in the world is going on there? There's a lot of strange stuff. In fact, as you know, if you've read it, the book of Revelation only gets stranger. 
Let me show you specifically what's happening in the context of this city so that you can apply it to your own life and to our city today. I'm going to show you some pictures here in a minute, but as I said before, I want you just to recognize that the theme for today, what God via Jesus specifically is saying to this church is to hold fast. He's telling them, guys, hang in there. Don't give up. Keep going. Don't quit. I know you're tired, but hang on. Hold fast. Hold fast. Philadelphians, Midlanders, Christians, anywhere, everywhere, all the time, hang on. Hold fast. Here's Here's what's going on in Philadelphia at that time. This is not modern Philadelphia as in Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia as in Turkey. This is actually a picture of the synagogue in Sardis, but I think it shows you a good, a good idea of what's going on in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is actually a city that's surrounded by volcanoes. They had a lot of seismic activity, so much of their ruins are just knocked down and you don't have a lot to look at. But... Uh, from the surrounding community, what we know is that there was a large Jewish population there. Now, obviously, there's all kinds of crazy racism and bad stuff going on in our culture. This is not to say that, you know, a specific ethnic group is bad just because they're an ethnic group. This is just saying that in this cultural climate, there was intense opposition from um, different religious parties. What they're doing particularly to the Christians who are a minority sect. They're not the majority. They're a new group. Is They're being persecuted. And so in the Jewish culture, the, you, were, you were accepted because you were of a certain family. And as a result, you kept these traditions and you kept this law and you were marked out and you were set aside. And you got to participate in the community in that way. So you'd go to the synagogue to do business, you would meet with your friends and all this other stuff. We can go back to, actually, let's go back to the first slide. So there, here's an example of a synagogue, and in the middle of the synagogue, they'd have this other thing called the bima or the judgment seat. Here's the next slide, a picture of that. This is what Jesus refers to when he's condemning the Pharisees in the New Testament. It says, you sit on the seat of Moses. Here's an example. The leader or the chief priest of that area would deliver judgments. If there's a dispute, you don't go to court. You go to the local religious authority, and they weigh out or measure the case before them. And if you're of the right family, and if you're a male, and if you're doing everything right, you could come here and do business and make it happen. However, if you're a female, if you're an ethnic minority, if you are a Christian, if you're of a lower social economic status, next slide please, the door would be shut to you. You would not be welcome inside this synagogue. And so here you hear in Revelation chapter 3, all these play on words, you know, Jesus is opening doors that no one can shut. That's to a people group who've already been shut out. The door has been closed to them and Jesus is saying, no, no, if you're in me, you actually have access to the throne, to God himself, not to some religious authority who's self-nominated himself to be the boss, but instead to the actual throne room itself. There's more there, but I'm going to leave it there, let you chase it down in life group questions, stuff like that. But that's what's going on in the city. Essentially, the Christians are being ostracized. They're being cut out. They're being persecuted. They're probably a lower socioeconomic class than some of these other folks have been there for a long time. As a result, they're suffering and they're having a hard time. And Jesus, that's why the words are in red here. It's a vision that Jesus gives to John. 
is saying to them, hang on, guys, I know it's hard. I know you've been cut out. I know you're not part of the in-group. I know you're suffering. I know you're struggling. I know these people don't like you and you've been ostracized. But hang on, I promise everything's going to be okay. And you ask that question then and you say, okay, well, how can you promise that? And well, the first reason, there's three. There's three reasons but I'll show you these as we work through this text, and then we'll apply them to our lives. The first is this. The, one of the first reasons to hold fast is because there is an affirmation. There is an affirmation. Like, in other words, Jesus gets it. In so many of these other tasks that we mentioned earlier, whether it's praying, whether it's giving, whether it's making meals or doing laundry or raking leaves— the person who's not there, they just don't get it. I mean, they come home and they drive in the garage and they have no idea that you just spent like four hours to make it possible for you to open the door and not have tons of leaves blow in. For the person who sits down at the table, they have no idea how much time you spent cooking that meal. For the person who's never had cancer, they have no idea how difficult it is to walk through that path. For the person who's never been abandoned by their spouse, they have no idea what you're going through. For all of these different situations, there is simply no understanding in normal human beings. What you need instead is an omniscient, all-knowing, ever-present God who's literally been there and done that. He's seen every single angle He was there when that happened. He was there when you were abused. He was there when you were abandoned. He was there when you were hurt. He was there. God was there in every single moment because He is ever-present and all-knowing. He knew even the thoughts going through your mind and the very emotions and feelings that were in your heart. You can't impose that on another human being. No other person is going to understand every part of you. They may be able to listen pretty well, and they'll try to empathize, and they may be better than some others, but the reality is they didn't experience it. They didn't feel it. They weren't there, but God was. And so when the first thing that Jesus says to them is even though no one else seems to get it, all the other churches are different, even though... It's so hard for other people to understand. Jesus says this. He says, I know your works. Verse 8. I know. Like, I know. Here's a slide. Verse 8. He's specifically emphasizing the facts that he knows everything that they did. It's so weird when you do a good work, right? You don't want to... You want somebody to notice. You want to be recognized, yet you don't want to be self-promoting. You don't want someone to come home and they say nothing and you've been working for so long and eventually you're like, uh, did you enjoy that? <laughs> Was it good? How'd it taste? You know, or, boy, did you notice the yard? Have you looked across the street at the neighbor's yard? Have you seen that big pile of leaves in our road? Do you see, like, this huge bucket of laundry that has all my dirty clothes? Yeah, I know. I'll be doing that tomorrow. <laughs> no, no, it's because I just worked. You want somebody to notice, and here Jesus is saying, I noticed. I really did. I saw every single little thing that you did. Nothing goes unnoticed. Every single work that you do unto Christ, he gets it. Jesus gets it. And that's an encouragement because I think we as human beings want so bad for somebody else to understand. And Jesus is assuring us here. He does. Every single little thing that you've ever done well, Jesus says, ah, I saw that. I got it. I noticed I will pay you back. I promise. I know your works. I know your works. Jesus 
gets it. For this church specifically, you're doing well. I'm sorry, I'm all over the place with the slides. Go back to that other one, 3.8 and 3.10, that has the, I know your works, you kept my word. Here it is. In 3.8, he says, here's what you did specifically. You kept my word, have not denied my name. Even though they pressure you to do so, you have patiently endured. I see that, okay? Patient endurance. Who sees patient endurance, right? You endured. You might notice if somebody mowed the lawn. You might even notice if we made dinner. But what is patient endurance? Who notices that? Jesus does. You have patiently endured. I saw that. I know your works. So hold fast. Number one, the first reason is because there's affirmation. And number two, there's a guarantee. There's a guarantee. I'm about to say the most important thing that you're going to hear all week. I promise you, I think this is the single most important thing you're going to hear this week. How do we keep going when we know there's more meals to make tomorrow? How do we keep going when there's more leaves to rake? And if it's not leaves, it's snow. And if it's not snow, it's grass. And if it's not grass, it's something else. We are never going to be done. It just keeps going and going and going. Look, Here it is, ready? The reason for our ongoing work is the completion of Christ's work. Because Jesus finished his work, then it validates ours. The reason to continue our ongoing work is because Christ completed his work. His guarantee his finished work gives us assurance for our own now you still made me going okay i'm not i i think that's really important but i'm not exactly following let me show you this is why i brought the buckets today uh sometimes it's hard to illustrate things this is the best i could think of miss tara i'm trying really hard not to make a mess on your stage we'll do well here um what i have is two different sand pills. These are well used, so they're a bit faded. Um, and I do admit that one sand pail was in fact injured in the making of this illustration. There was a hole that was drilled the other day. I was in my backyard. I've got my drill out. My kids automatically know what is dad doing with a drill. <laughs> I was drilling a hole in the bottom of the sand bucket, of course. Why not? <clears throat> um, I'll show you why. I did not drill a hole in the purple one. Then I would have been in trouble. All right. So here's the thing. Let's say you're just a regular person and you're doing these works over and over again. There's good works. Maybe people are noticing. Maybe they're not. But you know that just to exist, there's a number of tasks that you have to do. And you're, you know, moral and good. And you try to do things really well. So you're just doing them and doing them and doing them. Probably if you're like me, you feel like this. Well, I haven't actually practiced this. Double up here. See how we go. (laughs) All right. So if you're like me, you probably feel just like this. You're like, oh, man, I am. I'm going. I'm just, I'm working. And you're pouring into something. And yet it just kind of keeps pouring out. Like, Maybe you've poured into a relationship and it's leaked. Maybe you've poured into your children and they haven't 
exactly given back. Maybe you worked to raise them to be a godly, Christian, upstanding young person your whole life, and they are rebelling in flat-out distinction to everything you've ever taught them. And you feel like every single day is just going like that. Why do I get up the next day and do it again? I mean, what's a pastor having a midlife crisis right now or something? What's going on? Yeah, maybe. But here's the thing. Now, that was, this is actually my drinking water. So I'm going to need another one next service, guys. All right. Here's the thing. That is other people. That is our task. I could look for all kinds of other motivations. I could say, you know, we're pouring ourselves into our stock portfolio because we're trusting at retirement that things are going to look really good. And if it does, it's going to be okay. Well, what happens if the bottom falls out? We're pouring into that child because we really want to be good parents. And what happens if the bottom falls out? I'm pouring into that relationship because I was trained to be faithful and the bottom falls out. We're pouring into all this stuff. And we're like, man, I don't know. I mean, I do not know. It's just a mess. Everything leaks. Nothing holds up. And then you shift your gaze from all of this stuff that you're pouring into into one single place. And you look at the cross where Jesus poured himself out and his blood is spilt and his body is broken and you say, wow, now there's a good work. And on that one single work, you don't have to ever ask the question, is it worth it? Or will it pay off? Because it was, and it did, and it will. And what happened there is that Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection were so powerful and so effective that they can actually plug the hole and make it possible then for all of our good works to matter. At that point, what happens is yeah, we sin, and so we owe God something. But Jesus' blood is more valuable, and so when he pays it, he pays for all of our mistakes. When we sin, our sin, our mess-ups, our mistakes, they have an effect. But when Jesus is killed, the effect of that sacrifice is more effective and more lasting than any thing we have done and when jesus is raised from the grave it is in fact more powerful than anything we could do either and so his blood is more precious his sacrifice more effective and his resurrection more powerful than all of our sins and therefore we can look at that work and we can say it is complete it is perfect it is unquestionable and it is a guarantee as a result what happens is this If I'm pouring myself into my lawn, if I'm pouring myself into my kids, if I'm pouring myself into my dishes or my laundry or my daily stuff, then it just keeps dripping out. But if I'm pouring myself into Jesus, it stays. And I may pour myself into that kid, and they, I may 
I may pour, if I'm pouring myself into Jesus and my child rebels, nothing has changed here. Because I was pouring myself into Jesus and not into them. If I'm pouring myself into Jesus and they don't like what I made for dinner, it doesn't matter. Because I poured myself into Jesus, not into dinner. If I went home and I raked all the leaves for like three and a half to four hours and nobody notices. And I did that with joy in my heart and singing to God. I can be assured that he says to me, I know your works. I saw that. You poured it out unto me and not unto men. Blessed are you. Prepare to inherit the reward I've made for you. No matter what it is, no matter what, if we are doing it to Jesus, then it matters because his work is so perfect that it can contain and hold together all of our own. And then when mine isn't perfect, when I'm trying to pour and I'm going like this and I'm making a mess, and I'm like, ah, Jesus is like, no, no, don't worry. I got that. My work is so perfect that yours doesn't have to be. In fact, I know that yours never will be. And so you can just give up and forget that perfectionistic tendency right now and kick it out the door and know that everything you do is not going to be just right. But instead, what I did was. And as long as you're pouring into that, then I've got enough space to make up for all your mistakes. Look, there is an affirmation. He notices. He gets it. And there's a guarantee. I don't really know how to explain it. I made up some silly thing that I'm hoping will communicate. You'll remember one way or another. But I want you to see, if you're pouring into something else, for whatever reason, there is no guarantee that it's going to hold water. But if you are doing it to Jesus, then it really doesn't matter. It doesn't. If you're doing it unto Jesus, then at the end of the day, it's going to be okay because what he did worked. What he did was effective. What he did was perfect. And so anything else we do on top of that is just gravy because what was needed has already been done. Now everything else is just bonus. The reason that we should hold fast and hang on It's not because we think we're going to be awesome. It's not because we think we're going to be perfect. It's not because we think somebody else is going to be noticed. It's not because we're going to get a promotion or things are going to go well. There is no guarantee of any of that. But there is a guarantee that if we're doing it unto Jesus, that he will notice and that it will count and it will mean something and it will matter. No matter how big or how small it might have been. The most important thing you'll hear all this week, the reason for our work is the assurance of Christ. The reason to continue your ongoing work is because His completed work. Number one, there's an affirmation. Number two, there's a guarantee. And number three, there's a reward. There is a reward. Since He noticed and since His lays the foundation, then there's a payoff at the end. I think a lot of times we do stuff because we want to know, is it worth it? And will it pay off? You know, It's one thing for it to be worth it, but another, if man, if it doesn't come back around at some point, why did I do that? I mean, 
really, if we didn't know that Jesus won, then I think it may not be worth it to expend your life on his behalf. But because he's resurrected from the dead, because we know he's coming back, because our future is guaranteed, then we know that even if the devil kills us, it will still pay off. There's a reward. Here's the four things that are listed as a reward in this passage. And what's interesting is you, you see these, and again, you're like, I don't see how that's a reward. I'll show you. Here's the thing. Jesus gives them four rewards. He says, I'm going to make you a pillar. I'm going to write the name of God on you. I'm going to write the name of the city on you. And I'm going to give you a new name. Wow, that's what I was hoping for for Christmas. (laughs) Sweet. The name of the city. Thank you. (laughs) You know, really, if I wanted something, I might ask for a new truck. (laughs) Or perhaps a roof. Or a retirement account. Or whatever. You know, I can think of a lot of stuff. And a new name's probably not really high on the list. What in the world is going on here? Now, let's be honest here, church. We can, no, I was going to say we can lie when we go out there, but let's tell the truth both places. But let's be honest. I mean, the reality is money and health, they would help a lot, right? I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher, so I'm not here to tell you that life is all about your prosperity and your health. But a lot of us in our, you know, more honest moments are like, you know, I could really use some more money. Or, man, I'd like to not have these sicknesses anymore. That would really be a benefit. Why in the world do I need those four things? Here's the thing. What I discovered when I was preaching, when I was studying this passage this week, is I actually am a prosperity gospel preacher, but not in the way that you think. I'm not saying that you will get it now, but I'm saying that you will begin to get it now, and you will get it eventually. This is what I mean. First thing is this, a pillar. Here's a picture of a pillar. Now, this is actually in the ancient city of Philadelphia. Uh, These are pillars of a church that was made in the 6th century as a memorial to St. John, so it's not from their time period. But you saw other pillars at that time, um, Ephesian columns and things like this. Um, So you know that they are very familiar with pillars. And in their region where there's volcanoes and earthquakes and stuff is always getting knocked down, The idea of a pillar that is standing, that doesn't fall, gives the idea of stability. So in this world where there are so many variables, where I don't understand what's going to happen or why or whatever, things might change and get shaky the next day, what this promise is, is it's a promise of stability that those who place their faith in Christ will be guaranteed a sure foundation that is unshakable and immovable regardless of what comes your way. I'm going to make you a pillar. I'm going to make you unmovable. I'm going to make you solid in me. So it's an assurance. The next thing he says is the name of God. Now, you know, what are you going to do? When you go home, are you going to write the name of God on your arm? No. What this means is this. It's like when you get married or something like that. If you decide to change your name, it indicates a relationship. In other words, God is saying, okay, I'm going to stabilize things for you, and you're going to be in relationship with me. There's going to be a relationship change there. And then the next thing is the name of the city. You heard about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. This is eternal paradise and bliss. You're going to have a right 
to go in there. They will not be able to shut you out anymore. This is no longer the country club that is exclusive and members only. Instead, the doors are wide open and all who believe in him are welcome. Come in. There is a place for you at this table. You can eat whatever you want and enjoy all of it. You get a spot in this New Jerusalem, in this city, whatever you've been ostracized or cut out of before, whether it's a relationship or economic or whatever, you are now welcomed to come in. The name of the city is on you. Not only the name of the city, but you're going to get a new name. So in other words, everything you struggled with before is going away. In that day and time, the name stood for someone's character. Your character represents who you are. That's why there's all these awesome names of God And ultimately, the only name is he is infinite. He is I am. He is beyond us. Your name in that day and age represented who you are. So when it says, I give you a new name, I am making you a new person. I am making you whole. I am taking away your brokenness and changing everything about you. All through there, the rewards are stability, relationship, belonging, and character. God is making you righteous. God is making you righteous. Now, here's what's crazy. We, you know, the next thing it's going to say is we're going to um, give you as another reward. So I've just said that God is making you righteous. I'm going to give you as a reward. Here's another picture of something like that. A crown of righteousness. Honestly, here's a crown from a little bit before that time period. Fourth century Ephesus. This is in. Asia Minor. We're not in Ephesus today. We're in Philadelphia. But here's a crown. Some victor might be given something like this. I don't want that. Like if I was over there today and I found that, what would I do with a leafy gold thing? I would sell it on eBay to the highest bidder. I would. Some good-hearted people out there might donate it to a museum. I'm like, no, no, ka-ching. I need a new roof. That looks like either retirement or college or something. I don't know. I don't want a crown. What do we in our culture do with a crown? Nobody walks around in the United States wearing crowns anymore unless it's Halloween. We don't see that. Why do I want a crown of righteousness? This is the prosperity gospel thing. In other words, here's what happened. When we fell, when we sinned, then the Bible tells us that death entered the world and decay and evil and destruction. But what Jesus did makes it possible for sin to be overcome. And as a result, we can gradually grow in our righteousness. And as we do so, God assures us that at the end, he'll give us a crown the crown of righteousness. I still, why do I care? Because righteousness is perfection. And what we're all actually longing for is perfection. We want prosperity. We don't want to lack anything ever again. We want to be filthy rich. We never want to get sick. We want to be happy all the time. We want to have streets of gold and everything just right. That's called righteousness. That's what you get when you get righteousness. When you get sin, you get all the other bad stuff that you need police and armies and doctors for. But when you get righteousness, none of that bad stuff ever comes into the city. We want righteousness. Many of us think we don't want righteousness. That's that, you know, moral whoever who sits over there and doesn't have any fun. Hoity-toity, better than thou, Mr. Religious Righteous. Whatever, I don't want any of that. No, actually you do. 
When you sin, you get hurt. When you sin, you lose. When you sin, death is brought in. But when all things are made well, when all things are made whole, then the city is righteous and it is stable. And there is no lying and there is no deceit in your character. Looks just like Jesus, and then you live forever and never die again. And that's a good thing. That's what you've actually wanted all along, is righteousness. And so Jesus assures you, hey, look, I know your works. I know them. And they're not just pouring through the bottom of this bucket. But if they're pouring into me, then they're just filling up for the day of glory when I'll pour them back onto you and you'll be so glad because you'll be quadruple, quintuple, whatever rewarded. And it's worth it. It's worth it. And the great and beautiful thing about this is it doesn't depend on us. Man, if it did, I would have failed so long ago, I would be done. I would be on opioids or whatever else. It would make me feel better. It wouldn't matter. But it depends not on our perfect work, but on Christ's completed work at the cross. That's why if you look at this text again and you do observational Bible study, what you'll see is over and over again, for whatever reason, Six times, here's a slide, Jesus says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I don't know, was that six? I didn't count. Over and over again, it's on him and not us. It's his guarantee, I will make, I will do, I will keep, I will write. Jesus does this. If it were on me, it wouldn't happen. I am not good enough. If it were on our church, it wouldn't happen. But because the assurance is on Christ and what he did on the cross, then it will. Hold fast, church. Don't give up. Don't let down. Don't back off. Why? Because Jesus did and he will. He notices. He guarantees. And he rewards. Therefore, it's worth it. It really is. I don't, it doesn't seem like it when we read about a crown of righteousness. I don't want a crown. Like a pillar and a new name, whatever. What do I want? I want to be happy. I want to have no needs. I want to be healthy. I want to enjoy a good relationship. I want happily ever after. That's forever. And that's real. And that's righteous. And that is what Jesus can give you that nobody else can. Everything else falls through the cracks. But his is the only bucket that will hold water. Put everything, everything in that one. And nothing else. Father, we thank you for your only Son, Jesus, who does what nobody else could. To him be the glory and honor and praise forever and ever. Amen.